0: Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for bringing us safely to a brand new week. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin or be overcome by anxiety or by adversity. And in all that we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, I'm going to share my screen. Mary sitting
1: outside. Today, it's freezing cold. My dogs are too dirty to go inside. It's my own fault because the backyard is still...
0: All right. Now, let me give you a background before I read because we're going to be skipping some chapters. Um, Believe it or not, this is our second to last class before our time with the Acts of the Apostles ends. And last week, Paul was in Athens. We've skipped a few chapters and now we're going to be looking at Acts 25, where Jesus' call to be a witness uh, is going to be seen really, really clearly as Paul stands before the authorities. But in order to understand the background of this passage and what's happened, in chapter 21, Paul is preaching in the temple and he is arrested by the Jewish authorities. In chapter 22, Paul then stands before the Jewish leaders. Um, and they kind of, because of a uh, a, uh, a plot, um, to just because of the commotion that Paul is making, he then goes before the Roman tribune or the tribune and, uh, the council there, and, and he's about to be whipped. Uh, the Romans like to whip people and beat them kind of as, as a nice little punishment, but Paul informs the centurion about to whip him that he is a Roman citizen And all of a sudden, the centurion lays off because you don't really whip Roman citizens if you're a centurion without a trial. Uh, And so he's then taken back to the Jewish council and chief priests, and the Jews plan to kill Paul. And because this plot to kill Paul gains ground, the Romans then intervene again, and they escort Paul to Felix the governor and Caesarea. And so by the time we get to chapter 24, Paul is for, before Felix, the governor in Caesarea, who was um, the Roman um, uh, kind of pro- provincial governor of Judea, um, kind of a, akin to like a county commissioner or something like that. And Felix doesn't really know what to do with Paul, so he leaves him in prison um, for, for a while until he is succeeded by a new governor by the name of Portius Festus. And so when Festus arrives in his post as a Roman official, he finds Paul in prison and immediately wants to meet with Paul. And so in chapter 24, Paul has a meeting with this new Roman governor, Festus. He's been in prison for two years. And Paul basically appeals to Caesar. And there's that famous verse, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, is appealing to the highest court in the land, the emperor himself. He's about to be transported to Rome. And yet, when that's about to happen, um, uh, King Agrippa, uh, Herod Agrippa II, uh, who was the great grandson of Herod the Great and the son of Herod Agrippa, who died in Acts chapter 12, We, we remember his death, he is passing through town and he wants to meet with Paul. And so what's about to happen is Paul is about to stand before King Agrippa um, before he is sent off to the emperor. Okay, so before I read this, any qu- I know that's a, a pretty uh, complex sh- strand of events that we've skipped, but any questions about that before we dive into the passage about the details I offered? Okay.
2: So I have a question. Sure. So basically the only reason the Roman authorities save Paul from being killed by the Jews, which I thought the Jews weren't supposed to kill anybody, um, is because he's a Roman citizen.
0: Uh, So uh, the Jews are not legally allowed to put anyone to death. That doesn't mean that um, mob violence did not happen behind the scenes. Uh, But according to the book of Acts, uh, it is a combination of wanting to protect Paul from this mob violence, coupled with the fact that he's a Roman citizen that leads um, Rome to intervene. But before you think that Rome is too friendly to Paul, the whole reason that Festus um, leaves, I'm sorry, the whole reason that Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years, uh, and I quote, is to do the Jews a favor. Um, and so okay. the, the Romans are really trying to a- appease the Jews to some extent uh, by leaving Paul in prison. And so they're a little torn on how to handle this political sticky situation, because on the one hand, this big body of people want him dead. On the other hand, he's a Roman citizen. And so that's kind of like a political sticky place to be. All right, let me read chapter 25, and I will go, I will read for quite a bit. After several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to welcome Festus. Since they were staying there for several days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man here who was left in prison by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me about him and asked for a sentence against him. I told them that it was not the custom of Romans to hand over anyone before the accused had met the accusers face to face and had been given an opportunity to make a defense against the charge. So when they met here, I lost no time. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and I ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I was expecting. Instead, they had certain points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Since I was at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wished to go to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of his imperial majesty, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to the emperor. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then Festus gave the order, and Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all here present with us, You see this man about whom the whole Jewish community petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing to deserve death, and when he appealed to his imperial majesty, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definite to write to our sovereign about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began to defend himself. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, because you're especially familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, the life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I belong to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on account of my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, Your excellency, Your excellency, that I am accused by the Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is what I did in Jerusalem. With authority received from the chief priests, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and since I was so furiously enraged at them I pursued them even to the foreign cities. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And let me just offer a few notes and we'll see what strikes you. Um so the chief priests and the elders of the Jews in verse 15 are asking for a sentence against Paul. And so It's really clear, you know, Luke is attempting to present the Jewish leaders as Paul's enemies. Paul is a traitor in their eyes, and he is now um, kind of representing the wrong team, and they are out to kill him. And the fact that he was such a prominent Pharisee, such a prominent Jewish leader before his conversion, only seems to heighten their rage. But there's going to be some parallels here between how the chief priests and the elders of the Jews treat Jesus, and how they are treating Paul. And so if you're sensitive to the two texts, you're gonna notice some very close parallels with them asking for a sentence against him in the face of the (laughs) Romans. In the same way that the Jewish leaders asked for a sentence from Pontius Pilate against Jesus, they are now doing the same in front of all the Roman leaders in the area. Um, And so moving to verse 18 and then 19, whenever Festus hears the case, notice uh, what he says, you know, they didn't charge this man with any of the crimes I was expecting. All they had were points of disagreement with him about their own religion. And so, you know, so what is Luke doing here? Because not only is Paul on trial before Festus, but from Luke's perspective, Christianity is on trial before Rome. And in the same way that Luke is eager to acquit Paul, which he will do here, uh, as we'll see in a sense, um, he's also eager to acquit Christianity in front of the Roman officials. And he does this by emphasizing that this is a disagreement within the same religion, that the Christians are part of the Jewish movement, but that they have different ideas and claims about who the Messiah is. And so, if you're a Roman official reading this, you know, part of Luke's secondary intent, if the first intent is just to tell the story, the secondary intent is to cast Christianity in such a light that it is a continuation of this very ancient religion uh, with a twist, right? Because these Christians have claims about Jesus who had died, but who Christians now assert to be alive, as we're told in verse 19. And obviously, that is um, a reference to the resurrection. Um, moving on to verse 23, just to kind of for the um, the rage the Jewish leaders have against Paul, um, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish community petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So Luke is up the ante. It is the whole Jewish community that wants this man dead. Not just in Jerusalem, but outside Jerusalem. And they are shouting that he ought not to live any longer. And so, again, parallel that with the shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Uh, We are meant to see the parallels between how Paul is treated and how Jesus was treated. And we remember what the risen Christ said to Paul at his conversion I must show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Um, But then in verse 27, it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. So, from Luke's perspective, they're all bogus charges. In the same way that the charges against Jesus were trumped-up charges, full of false witnesses, and you know, um, the same is happening with Paul. And so, Paul then gets to speak before Agrippa, and you know, Paul is very diplomatic. I consider myself fortunate that I get to speak to you, King Agrippa, um, and we notice that um, Agrippa, uh, it's not said outright that he's Jewish, but because he's the great grandson of Herod, I mean, this is a, has more ties to Judaism. Paul assumes you are especially familiar with all the customs and contrib- controversies of the Jews. And so Paul um, assumes a, a familiarity that Agrippa has with the Old Testament, with the law and the prophets. And later on, Paul will even say I know you believe the prophets, Agrippa. And so, unlike Festus, uh, Agrippa is not a pagan. Agrippa knows about Abraham. Agrippa knows about the promise of a Messiah. He might not be a faithful Jew, but Paul assumes that Agrippa knows the scriptures. And all he basically says was, Why am I here today? I'm on trial for my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship God day and night. It is for this hope, Your Excellency, that I am accused. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so this really is uh, an important verse in the book of Acts because it does two things. First, it reiterates that this whole movement Paul represents is about the promise God made to Abraham. Luke's going to hammer that home. This is about the promise God made to Abraham. But second, that it culminates with Jesus and the resurrection. That the promise made to Abraham would not be fulfilled by a military coup, It would not be fulfilled by a great rabbinic teacher. It would not be fulfilled by a zealot. But it would be fulfilled by someone who was crucified and who on the third day was raised from the dead. So I'm gonna go ahead and stop there, and we'll see before we read any further what you think about this uh, encounter of Paul in Acts. <clears throat> Mary. I have. Sorry.
1: So one thing I wonder: the parallels are extremely obvious um, to what's happening to Paul, like uh, Jesus and the crucifixion. My question is: did Luke? write this that way to make the points to the audience that we'll be reading, or is this one of those things that historically did indeed happen? And or it it gets in a little bit more when Paul actually starts talking, is he aware of this parallel and then moving into it? And does it matter?
0: Yeah, so are you asking the question of, is what Luke is doing more of a literary device or is it more history? Oh, yes. Well, I, so I want to hear what y'all think about that, because I'm, I, I, I'm not the expert, but uh, I, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, is where I would start, Correct. right? Yeah. That, uh, every historian uh, does history in a particular way. And I think, as I mentioned at the beginning of this class, you know, we need to examine our 21st century Western American lens on what history is, um, not because ours is better or worse, it's just different. So If I'm writing the history of St. Michael's, you don't want a lot of bias. You probably want some facts. You wanna know who the characters were and what happened. You probably don't want my interpretation of it or what I thought about it. But the ancients, don't get me wrong, um, history mattered, the facts mattered. You know, Luke says, we're writing these things so that you might have assurance of these things, that Jesus rose from the dead, et cetera, et cetera. But they were a lot more comfortable with the idea that we do history with, for lack of a better word, an agenda. That wasn't a scandalous thing for them, and you know, Luke even says, "This is my agenda in writing this history at the beginning of his account." And so, um, those aren't really mutually exclusive things. I think that um, that the parallels that Luke highlights are done intentionally as a literary device. They would have been caught more by the Christians than they would the Romans more likely. And I think the the agenda there or the point there is just to kind of reemphasize, you know, the common theme of scripture of, you know, what happened to me will happen to you. You are in me. So my fate is your fate. My crucifixion will lead to your crucifixion. My resurrection will lead to your resurrection. As I stood before the authorities, so you will stand before the authorities. And so Luke has that agenda um, but I don't think that rules out the possibility of Luke doing some really good historical work here. And, uh, certainly, um, you know, a lot of acts kind of bears out when you, when you look at the history of it.
1: Well, yeah. And I think, and that, that's where I was, cause I know we sometimes talk about, yeah, they don't, uh, history and the truth are not mutually exclusive or the a literary, a literary license is not necessarily against history, but I do think of, um, Yes, the writings were about sharing the truth, the truth not always being facts, straight out facts. And so that's where if the story is giving a universal truth, that's how people were. And it's, to me, when you ask the question, when Paul does start giving his own defense and conversion stories, and you said, why are the details different? And again, to me, my answer to that is it's the audience. He was setting up with who he was talking to and who would hear it. And so you share what is going to connect and resonate with With what what your audience needs to hear or wants to hear, so yeah. I was just that made me probably think more about what I asked than I would have.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, and the only thing uh, that I'll I'll just say before we kind of go to a different comment or someone who wants to build off of that is that uh, I do want to clarify that facts were really important uh, to Luke and to all the biblical writers. It just wasn't the 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 one thing considered. And so, for instance, like it's, it matters to Luke that Paul is meeting before Festus in Caesarea, and that Agrippa came with his wife Bernice. I mean, you know, these are not symbols for the great archetype of kinghood. I mean, th- th- these are facts that are part of the story. Um, the, the, you know, but, but once the basic facts are laid bare, you know, the fact is Paul gave a speech. But I think that whereas you and I would want a tape recorder and to record every word Paul said, Once we have the facts and Paul gives a speech, I think an ancient historian would be a little bit more comfortable kind of doctoring the speech a little bit in order to convey a deeper truth than a more modern historian who says, if this word didn't come out of so-and-so's mouth, don't write it in the history books. So that's just a difference between modern and ancient history. Jackie?
2: Um. I know that Felix left Paul in prison. Are we to assume this is a kind of house arrest or a maximum security prison or or what? Do we know any details about this imprisonment? Could uh, people access Paul during this time?
0: Uh, I want to offer an answer that I'm about 90% confident in, not being an expert in in ancient Roman practice. But I think later on, we're actually told in Acts that Paul was under house arrest, and we know that that was a thing. We know that people had access to Paul, that he wrote a lot of letters from prison from his own epistles. And so I I don't think this is maximum security slammer. I think it's more of a, a house arrest situation, you know, where people... Uh, have some, some real limitations to their existence.
3: Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I may have figured it out. It was um, up above under, uh, let's see, line uh, 24, I think the second half of it, um, it, it. Well, It talks about how the whole Jewish community petitioned me in Jerusalem and here and in the past Um, you've clarified that it was really just the Jewish leaders uh, who were bringing this to bear. And I was going to ask about that. And then I thought, well, it probably was leaders who had the voice. And this, again, was probably a literary um, strategy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to make the point that you know, what Jesus went through, you know, crucify him, crucify him, you know, it was the same thing that um that Paul
0: Yeah, did. so I, I, think, I think you're right on there. I think this is shorthand for the whole Jewish community of leaders, and so we actually still do this, you know, so for instance, if we go to diocesan council and, you know, that we pass a resolution to be committed to clean energy in our churches, I don't know, I'm just making this up, and let's just say the the council passes it by 92% to 8%, you know, and and I come back to you and I say, the whole diocese is in favor of this new resolution. Well, that's actually not the truth. This council was a very small representative of the whole diocese, and it's a vote that had momentum. And, you know, so we sometimes, you know, we sometimes shorten things just with the normal laziness of language. And I think that that's kind of what Luke is doing here. He's probably just embellishing the fact that for the most part, all the leaders agree that Paul is a traitor and that he needs to die. That's probably the point he's making. Reading here, so I'm going to read a very short passage before we go back to um, to the rest of this. This is where Paul tells of his conversion, and I'm just going to read this very short paragraph, and I want you to think about the differences and how Paul's Tells us the story now and how it was told earlier in Acts. So with this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus. So Paul's still speaking to Agrippa. Um, with the authority and commission of the chief priest, when at midday along the road, your excellency, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and my companions. When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goats. I asked, who are you, Lord? The Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from, the people, from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, so just a few things I want to highlight here. One is that if you're to cross-reference Paul telling his story with um, the more third-hand account of the story we read earlier, there's some slight differences. So here there's a light, but now it's brighter than the sun. Um, And it's seen not just by Paul, but also by his companions. In Paul's telling everyone fell to the ground. Um, This time the voice speaks in the Hebrew language. I'm pretty sure that in the original text uh, or the original account, Luke didn't include, it hurts you to kick against the goads. I have to go check on that. But that seems to be a new detail about this story. And so one thing I want us to reflect on is, Uh, Does it bother you that the details aren't identical in Luke's own telling each time Paul tells a story? It's actually told three times in the book of Acts, and if you examine it, I wouldn't say there's contradictions necessarily, but they're all told a little bit differently, and they're all by the same author, and so this isn't a slip or an oops. Uh, And so one question scholars have is, given that the story is told three times, why is it told in three different ways? Or why is it told with three different details emphasized? And a question I like to ask people is, whenever you tell your own story, do you always tell it the exact same way? Or do the details sometimes shift? Is that just a very normal thing? So I I want you to hold that question. And then just a few theological points. I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen. And so notice, Paul is fulfilling that vocation now. He is before the kings. He is before the authorities. He is being a witness. It is for this moment that God called Paul, not just to stand before the Jews, but also before the Gentiles. And notice, you know, Paul will eventually be put to death, not by the Jews, but by the government of Rome. Um, He will be, you know, killed as a martyr, um, uh, tradition says, um, by the Romans. And so Paul has to testify before both and ultimately both decide that he needs to die. Uh, And so this is a hard thing for him to do. Um, And then finally, um, I just kind of like pay attention to the theological details we get from Luke because we don't get a lot of them because he's more of a historian and he has more of a social political agenda. But we do get hints of his theological worldview. I'm sending you to open their eyes So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I don't know this uh, because I haven't done an in depth study, but my guess is that this is the only place in Luke or Acts where it talks about us being sanctified by faith. And it's just like a very small little detail. And so I encourage you, whenever you Um, read the book of Acts and you see these speeches to pay attention to the details because they are the best window we have into Luke's theological worldview. Uh, Okay. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. That's a really short passage, but I think there's a lot there potentially to discuss. What do you find interesting or curious about that little snippet or about Paul telling a story? Rhoda. well.
2: Uh, who was with him, then? Do we know?
0: Well, uh, Paul is—you know—so he is still in prison before Festus and speaking before Agrippa. So, I, I
2: mean, when, when when he was on the road, um, who was with him? I always thought would he was
0: to back to—I think—chapter three to look. But at this point, Paul is a Pharisee or Saul, uh, and he is like the head of the mob. And so none of the Christian characters are on his side yet. So he's not with, you know, uh, he's not with Peter. He's not with James. I mean, they haven't met yet. And so it's really just a bunch of unnamed Pharisees and unnamed leaders. Now, whether or not these are the same leaders who were present at Jesus's trial, uh, whether or not this was the same leaders who were present at uh, the stoning of Stephen, um, probably was. And I'm sorry, I keep saying chapter three. I think it's chapter eight. I, I'm getting mixed up in my head of when Paul's conversion was. So we don't know who was with him.
2: The This is Diane. I hey. mentioned- uh, Hey, Diane. When he, you had mentioned that uh, have his, like if you tell your story, what do you maybe change? And I'm thinking maybe could the three versions be based because they're being written for a different audience? And sometimes you might stress different things with a different audience. I but I don't know if they're being written for a different audience or not.
0: Well, it's a great question, um, Diane. And and I think that I think that I, I, I'm not inclined to say that, and it's possible. Um, I'm inclined to say that the whole book is written for two different audiences and that that's kind of the genius of the book on the one hand, maybe even three audiences actually, uh, on the one hand, there are those who are already in the church, people who are committed Christians who are experiencing difficulty and persecution and who need to be strengthened and encouraged to stay the course and to be reminded that their vocation is to be a witness to the resurrection. And so on the one hand, Paul is writing, or Luke is writing to the faithful to uh, give them assurance that the gospel for which they are suffering is real. A second potential audience are Jews who do not yet believe, right? Uh, who are on the cusp, who might still be worshiping in the synagogue, and who are really debating, is Jesus the Messiah? That's a potential second audience. And then a third very clear audience um, are the Roman officials who are suspicious of this very new this very new movement, mm-hmm. and uh, Luke's intent there is to frame Christianity as a continuation of God's calling to Abraham, i.e., kind of the Jewish faith, uh, so as to make Christianity more credible to the empire, so that they're not mm-hmm. persecuted. Um, and then finally, I guess if we want to have a fourth audience. <laughs> Paul tells us the name of, uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying Paul. Luke tells us the name of who he wrote this for, Theophilus. Do you remember? In chapter oh, one, yeah. that means friend of God. And whether okay. or not Theophilus was a real person or whether it's a metaphor for anyone who wants to consider him or herself a friend of God. You know, think about the uh, Athenians we studied last week. Um Uh, I went around, Paul says, and look carefully at the objects of your worship to an unknown God, the God you proclaim as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so maybe those Athenians were people who just wanted to be a friend of God, but didn't know God's name. And so you see Mm -hmm. the many nuances of who Paul could be writing to. And I think it's entirely possible that he told the story in different ways to maybe reach each one of them.
2: Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So, whenever you tell your own story, does that make sense to tell it a little differently every time, or do you always get the details the exact same?
2: I think we, I mean, I think most people would tell their own story a little bit differently. Uh, You know, the big facts are going to be there and they'll be the same, but different things might be stressed uh, at different times or with a different audience, I think, or just how you might be feeling at the time. I mean, it's like when we read the Bible, you've read. You know, we've read these stories multiple times, but we might get something different from it depending on where we are in our life and our journey at that particular time.
0: It's a really good point. Michael, are you raising your hand? Uh, yes. Uh well, I've been cross-referencing and uh, uh Julie, did, did uh you have a, a comment or a question?
2: Yeah. Um you know, this this um, telling of the story doesn't mention anything about, you know, Paul being blinded and then his sight being given back to him, but they talk about, it's almost like a metaphor for what he's wanting to do for the people, so that they're in darkness and he wants to, you know, shine a, open their eyes to the truth. So I just thought that was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, so two things, that building off your comment, Julie, and and also um, um, maybe it was, yeah, Kay, I think you said, I forget who said that, you know, all the details, when we tell a story, all the details stay the same, but some of the small details shift. That's certainly true in my own experience. So I experienced a call to the priesthood in a pretty dramatic way going into my junior year of college, and it happened on a golf course, you know, very suddenly. And, you know, when I tell that story, I've told that story 45, 145 times. And sometimes I feel like I have a minute to tell the story. Sometimes I feel like I have minutes to tell the story. Obviously, the one minute version is not the 10 minute version. But when I tell the story, there's certain things that never change. This is the time it happened, give or take a month. This was the golf course. This is who I was playing with. These are some of the details in the background this is the question I was asked, this is what I felt, this is how I responded, all that's the same. But it's never the same story because, and as I tell it, you know, over and over again, you know, one of the things that just happens in terms of neurobiology is that the details change in your brain. I mean, like our memory is not that good to know exactly what happened and what actually happened that day over time I don't even know. I just have my story of it now. And I know that the story is rooted in reality, but as I've told the story over and over, it's almost like the story is alive. And, you know, part of me wonders whether or not that's just not a human principle. You know, Paul was always on the road to Damascus. There was always a light. There was always blinding. There was always a conversion. But to me, it's not scandalous at all that over time, some of those details change a bit because it's so true to my experience of being a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it actually gives the story more credibility, not less, to be honest with you.
2: Yeah. All
0: right. Let's look at the final piece here. After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had help from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." While he was making this defense, Festus exclaimed, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking the sober truth. Indeed, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak freely. For I am certain that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, Are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, whether quickly or not. I pray to God that not only you, but that all who are listening today might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king got up and with him, the governor and Bernice and those who had been seated with them. And as they were leaving, they said, this man is doing nothing to to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to the emperor. All right, let's unpack this really, really quickly. I'm going to go here. Um, So notice how Festus says, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And it really kind of raises the question of what is crazy? Is it crazy to believe that God raises the dead? Or is it crazy to believe that God doesn't raise the dead? Um, you know, Paul will say in first Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness, you know, to the world, but it is, you know, a power for those who believe and, you know, so we have to decide who is crazy here. Is it Festus who's crazy and what Festus represents or is Paul crazy? Um, because they are making two different claims about the nature of the world and, um, although I like to reconcile perspectives, I don't think you can recon- reconcile the perspective of Festus and Paul. And in a sense, I think we're asked to, to say, well, where are we on this? You know, uh, What is crazier, that God raises the dead or that God doesn't? Um, but then notice how Paul shifts. He basically says, I know that, um, so indeed the king knows about these things. Now he's talking about Herod Agrippa the second. Uh, because, you know, Agrippa has some background uh, in the prophets. Um, And um, notice what Paul says, uh, for this was not done in a corner. So this is a significant verse. This was not done in a corner. So part of what Luke is saying is that uh, this was, you know, Jesus's death and resurrection was a public spectacle. People know about it. People were talking about it. Everything that has emerged from it um, uh, has been significant. And even though in a sense, you know, God entered the world in what we might call an insignificant corner of the Roman Empire, from Luke's perspective, it was a big event and people know about it. And they know about the aftermath with this new movement called Christians. And so whenever Luke says this was not done in a corner, part of what he's emphasizing is this was a real historical event. That is kind of splashing out into all the corners of the earth, um, and then Paul shifts and asks Agrippa, do you believe the prophets and so Paul is now trying to convert Agrippa I mean he is living fully into his call to be an apostle he 's not here to save his life, he is here to give all people an opportunity to repent and believe, and he 's now doing that with Agrippa and Agrippa's funny he says um you know, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul says, I want everyone to be just as I am. And then there's a little bit of humor. He says, except for these chains. And so I don't know if you're noticing that Paul's making a joke, right? I mean, Paul has a sense of humor. He's standing there and he says very dramatically, I want everyone to become as I am. And then the irony is he's literally bound in chains. He's like, oh, (laughs) except for this, right? And so here we have this human moment. Paul is telling a joke. He's telling a joke when he is on trial for his life, about to go see the emperor. And so I think that's worth noting. But the other piece of it is there's some irony here because it raises the question, who is really imprisoned? Who is free? Is the king free or is the prisoner in chains free? Is Festus out of his mind or is Paul out of his mind? And so I'm not sure if you're catching the irony here, but like, is Paul really in chains or is Agrippa in chains? Um, is the prisoner for Christ free or is he not free? And and so I think that's kind of we're talking about. From Luke's perspective, Paul is the free man here and everyone else is in chains. And then finally, whenever... Um, Festus and Agrippa basically say this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Death. And says, Yeah, it's a real shame. He could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to the emperor. This is Paul's vindication. This is basically Luke's way of acquitting Paul and thus Christians who are also on trial by the surrounding Roman government. They've done nothing wrong, right? Paul has done nothing wrong. The Christians have done nothing wrong. And um, it's really important for Luke to finally take a stand and to say, all the charges are trumped up. And in fact, that whole line of this man has done nothing to deserve death, um, Pilate says something very similar about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, right? And so you have another parallel here of the innocence of Paul. And yet, he's on his way to the emperor. And so kind of the hint, hint is that Paul Uh, will not fare well when he goes to Rome. And that's where this chapter comes to a close.
1: If Paul had not appealed to the emperor, if I remember right, wouldn't he have been turned over to the Jewish authorities and therefore he would have been killed?
0: Well, we don't know. I mean, um, so again, um, maybe there was some like wink, wink. We don't believe in capital punishment, but the Jews were not allowed to, to kill anyone legally and now whether or not there yeah, were uh, whether or not there weren't some kind of back corner deals between some of the Jewish leaders and the Roman politicians, you know, we just don't know. But, um, you know, it's, it's hard to guess. I mean, you know, Rome can set people free they're They're in charge and they can say to the Jewish leaders, unless you want to end up on a cross too for <laughs> the, 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 tax romana or the peace of Rome, uh, you're going to lay off, you know, the Romans could have done that because they were in charge. I mean, the Romans mm-hmm. had all the power. Barbara.
3: I should know the answer to this of anybody, but um, in the previous uh, paragraph, when Paul tells of his preaching, He's saying, um, you know, he's saying that um, he's saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You know, why don't, you know, if that's what's not, if that's it. So that's what happened. And it's been documented. And everybody knows about it. And so help me understand why people don't see the connection or don't experience that connection.
0: Are, are you talking about the, uh, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? and like
3: Yes, Yeah. Are you, are fulfillment reference- of, yeah, yeah, it's Moses. It's like Moses is kind of the bedrock um, of the faith and that whole Exodus story and and then the prophets continue it. And
0: so, you know, the Jews sort of go, yeah, the prophets. And, and are you referencing us today in general, or are you referencing kind of the Jewish leaders of the time? Let's talk about the Jewish leaders of the time since we're doing a Bible study. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I think that um, the Jewish leaders at the time, I think one of the things that is very hard to understand, you know, is um, we can only see what we can see. And they had very, very strong ideas about what it meant for the kingdom of God to come on earth. And those ideas were so strong, it kept them from seeing what God had actually done. And their ideas, for the most part, were that the kingdom, it had to be political, it had to be worldly, it had to come probably through some form of bloodshed, not the shedding of God's own blood on the cross, but the shedding of the blood of the oppressors, Um, that it was probably tied to a, a theocracy where everyone was obeying the law. I mean, they had very clear ideas on what it looks like. And whenever we have very clear ideas on what we think something looks like, we often miss the beautiful thing that sneaks up on us. I mean, we all have an experience of that, right? So if you have you know think of something very simple if you have a very clear idea of what your christmas has to look like this year for you to be happy it has to go this way right well what happens if this beautiful gift comes your way but it looks nothing like that will you be able to see it because your expectations of what it should be are so strong and i think god's coming into the world was the same way um You know, even though it's all there uh, in the law and the prophets, right, that God was always going to do something for the world, that the promise was always to extend beyond Israel, that the law was never an end in and of itself, but a temporary means to help people stay connected to God as God's holy people. You know, over time, human nature is to solidify our expectations and opinions and images. And whenever we do that, uh, we sometimes miss what happens. And whenever you couple that with just the lure of power, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, how many of us want to give up wealth and power and prestige? You know, it takes a lot of humility to say that's not the most important thing in my life. And and I think that also human nature is a lot of the leaders understood this new movement was a threat to the little power they did have in their life. And they didn't want to gamble. They didn't want to risk it. That's just kind of a stab at it, though. No, but. I think I'm going to offer a theological answer that none of you are going to like. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean to offer this answer uh, as a, you know, as a weird, like, argument for predestination or any of that. That's not where I'm going with this. But I also think we all need to be reminded that faith is a gift. And uh, it doesn't mean that we're better than people because we believe. It doesn't mean that we're like that our faith is a gift. Um, And it's not the logical conclusion of intellectually studying philosophy, principles, and scripture. You know, it's not our intellect that arrives at faith. Our intellect is involved and we have to put it to use. But ultimately, faith is a gift. And so the metaphor that I use is, um, you know, like a sailboat of. Um, if we're going to go anywhere, we have to put up the sails. But if the wind doesn't come, we're not going to move, you know, and there's kind of this weird interplay. And I I don't actually sail. So I don't know if that's how it works or not. But that's how I have it in my mind. You know, God's job is to send the wind. Our job is to put up the sails. And it's not really a formula. You know, you have this interplay between human agency and divine initiative that always goes into what happens and so there's just always going to be some mystery I think that we have to hold with why we believe you know you have people in your life who have had the same experiences the same exposure who have different ideas about God who have a different faith and there's something mysterious about that and I think we just have to hold on to that mystery of faith being a mystery and faith being a gift. Do y'all like that, or do you recoil
3: at it? I do. Actually, it really resonates with me um, in a huge way. I have uh, two older sisters, and um, neither of them, you know, one, one is sort of a Jewish version of a priester, a, a um, but for Judaism, she always shows up for ho- high holy days. Mm-hmm. And if somebody invites her to a Passover Seder, by golly, she shows up. That's it. <laughs> you know. And then another one is on a very much of a sort of an exploratory faith journey, but doesn't want to commit to anything. Um, it's like hiking is her faith and uh, outdoor adventure is her faith. And then I came along and I was like, I don't get why I am the way I am. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so what you're saying somehow we're just all made a little differently and then does require a choice.
0: Well, and I also want to say that I don't want us to make the same mistake. And and here's what I mean by that. So the mistake you know, of the people of Israel was that they thought their election was for them. They thought that they were chosen to enjoy a privileged status as opposed to I have chosen you to be a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's no different with us. You know, like whenever we, we're not chosen to sit back and to say, oh, wow, we're special, beloved children of God. Everyone else is the redheaded stepchild who God doesn't love as much. And we're going to enjoy either heaven alone or the best seat in heaven and screw everyone else. You know, like that's, that's not like the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is, okay, so maybe we have been chosen, but what what have we been chosen for? Well, what did did Jesus tell Paul? You've been chosen to suffer a little bit more by the quality of your love and your witness. You've been chosen to be my witness. You've been chosen to have a mission of service to the rest of the world. And so whenever we start thinking about if you want, now I'm not saying you have to appropriate that language of chosen because it's just a word, right? It's a symbol and that either works for you, it doesn't. But if you start liking the language, okay, so yes, we, we've been chosen. Then we ask the question, chosen for what? We're chosen to serve. We're chosen to love. We're chosen to heal. We're chosen to suffer a little bit more because of the quality of our love. We're chosen to be a witness, right? And so all of a sudden, the whole idea of, of being chosen isn't a, a privileged place, but it's a place of heightened service and a place of heightened responsibility And I think that if we can kind of engage that posture, we end up a little bit more receptive again to what God is actually doing and not what we think God is supposed to be doing. How does that sound? Mm
2: -hmm. I, I like that very much. I think it makes a lot of sense. And, and I also wanted to say, I really liked your analogy about the sails and the wind. And, you know, we have to do our part to be able to, to receive God's blessings and, and grow in our faith, but it doesn't always happen continuously. It, it happens in, you know, kind of spurts. And so sometimes we sit there basically on the water with no wind but our sails up for a while and then uh, suddenly the wind will come but usually those times when we're just sitting there it is a it's a time of growing in our faith yeah and um, you know just like I think sometimes we're we're more focused on growing our own faith and other times more focused on sharing our faith but you have to have a certain amount of growth and in your own faith before you can go out and share it with others
0: yeah amen amen well team so next week uh if my mental syllabus serves me right this is our last meeting on the book of acts (laughs) i haven't decided what we're going to do yet uh for the spring um but there will be more uh on that um to come